Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. What you're about to hear is part of a series that Adam and I do with real estate forms as part of their Ref Club platform called Ask the Experts and or Thinkins. So please stick tuned for after the interview where Adam and I will still do the after show where we digest the conversation that we had. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for joining us on the Ref Club platform. This is Thinkin, Courtney Cooper. Courtney, thanks for joining us. Courtney is the principal of Late Partners and the co-founder of Prop Tech Collectives. Of course, you've got myself, Aaron Cameron, and Adam Powatic from the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. We've been doing these regularly and I've had the pleasure of interviewing Courtney. This is the third or fourth time. I'm losing, I'm losing track. And so if you want to go backwards and get an understanding of who Courtney is, you, will, you can go and find her history as part of our podcast feed. Uh, today, we're going to be focusing on, amongst a bunch of things, is a the PropTech Canada report that Courtney helped produce as part of her PropTech collectives. So thanks, Courtney. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Maybe let's just start with PropTech Collectives and how you kind of started it, where it came from, what was the root? So we started PropTech Collective officially last year, but it's been something we've been working on prior as women in PropTech. And really the sort of impetus was to help create an opportunity for bringing together people in real estate or real estate technology and PropTech and bridging the gap between the technology and real estate world. So, you know, for us, there's a strong focus on, you know, how do we bring the right people together to create change and a real belief that technology and innovation can create, can make the built world better, but we need the right people at the table. And there's a lot of real estate groups. There's so many amazing groups through Informa and ULI and RealPack and NAOP. And, you know, you guys know all of them, but there's a ton, but there's less on the tech side. And how do you connect the the people who are trying to build these tools? And how do you bring that domain expertise together with people who understand real estate and can be uh, the the customers and and leaders? So that's where it started from. We're no longer women in prop tech, but we still keep a core focus on diversity and how do we uh, bring new voices to the table, whether that's you know, people from the technology side, whether that's women, underrepresented groups. So that's what we've been working on. And then we just published this report in January. So we're excited to, to share that and, and start with the landscape. So for anybody listening, we are going to cover a lot of the report today. Where's the best place that they can access it? We'll get to that, you know, right at the start. Where can they go get the uh, report? PropTechCollective.com slash report. It's also in Informa on the Informa and the Ref Club. You can find it under Insights. All right, perfect. Well, let's jump into it. It's a a large document. A lot of work went into this. I mean, how fast did you go from the inception conversation to the execution? What were the challenges? And then how happy were you to see it recently birthed into the world? So it was actually Alice's idea. So one of there's two co-authors, Alice and Steph. Alice is at Oxford and Steph is at CPP, both focused on real estate and technology. And so it was Alice's idea. It was something she was interested in. And we probably started talking about it in October. And then it really started to take shape in November and December. And then in January was all of the crunch of trying to get all of the information that we've collected into a report that looks something like what you saw come out the other end. So uh, it was exciting to get it out. And, you know, it was, it, was, it was a project that grew because as we were collecting information and as we started interviewing people, it was really interesting. We wanted to learn more. And so we kind of just kept expanding as we went. 
So we collected over 300 co- prop tech companies, companies that are focused on real estate technology. About 80% of them are located in five cities. So Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Calgary, and Kitchener-Waterloo. So nothing surprising there in sort of the largest population centers are where uh, most of the companies are. And about 50% of those are in, in Toronto. I think in terms of like the other part of the landscape, it's really important to just call out the fact that Canada has more than our fair share of real estate and construction companies. So when you look at sort of the beginning, we talk about how 10 of the top 50 global investors are based in Canada. So those are the pension funds and companies, you know, the CBPs, Manulife, Omers, PSB, Hoops. And then we've got just so many companies, Brookfield, Dream, Quadrail, Slate, Empire. And so I think that what's important about this is that these are key customers, they're key decision makers, whether or not they may or may not be operators, but they have an influence on the, the global real estate industry. And so a lot of the real the prop tech companies, even the American ones, like the BTS, Honest Building, some of the larger names that you think of have come to Canada and they've come to get customers, they've come to get funding, they've come to get mentorship and support that have helped them scale. So I think that Canada's played a role based on the companies that are based here, as well as just supporting some of the largest and growing companies in the space. You know, I think we also have a, an incredible tech community that's growing here. And so I'm sure many of um, everyone's kind of seen the CBRE and other reports that talk about how Canada is one of the largest and Toronto's got some of the largest growing tech centers in North America, how we just generally have a good environment for talent as well as friendly immigration policies. And so we are starting to see more prop tech companies, foreign ones that want to open up and have a bigger presence in Canada. I've got uh, one question on geographies. I thought there was one city that was absent from the, be the forefront of prop tech in Ottawa. Ottawa is known as a, as a technology city. They, you know, they were one of the cities that put in an application for the Amazon HQ2 uh, a couple of years ago. Are they just not focused particularly in the prop tech area or are they lagging behind in staying up uh, ahead of the race? Or what, what are your thoughts on Ottawa not being there? I don't have a specific comment on it. I mean, I think that they didn't have as many as they, they, they just weren't in the top five. I could double check and see who's there. Uh, there are companies out of Ottawa and obviously Shopify is a big driver of tech talent. And so they've got a big presence there. Relogic comes to mind as a company that's based in Ottawa. So there's definitely companies in an ecosystem that's growing there as well, but it just wasn't one of the top ones. I'll assume they're at number six then. That's why they didn't make the list. Probably. <laughs> well, they've got Shopify, right? Everybody's like, you hear Shopify, you think Ottawa, and that maybe leans people towards thinking Ottawa is, you know, should be at the top of the list. You know what, before we go any further, it, it dawned on me that maybe we need to do a little bit of education, perhaps. So first and foremost, like, how do you define prop tech? Because there is probably a gray area where some, some people might just fall out and not. So maybe just start there, Courtney, and I'll follow up questions so you can just kind of mold into that or kind of lead into that is, just your methodology. Once you've defined what a prop tech means, what was the methodology to really kind of figure out how people fit into your survey? So you might notice that a definition is notably absent from the report. We made a conscious decision not to define it. I've heard it defined every which way, focused on any technology that powers the real estate industry, new business models, new ways of thinking uh, that are related to the real estate industry. And I think that's why part of the reason that we didn't specifically define it. The way we focus on it, and honestly, we leverage a methodology and a framework that already existed. So we base our maps based on TomVest. So they put out some market maps in the past. And so that's kind of how we did it. And what we liked about it was they grouped companies based on 
sort of the in the process over time. So find property, evaluate and finance, manage asset utilization, or how do you use them? Sort of a similar one on the residential side as well. So we went with that, and then sort of the the subcategories and clusters. And so rather than a definite definition, you can see the companies that we decided and the categories that we decided to include. And so the ones that get picked on a lot is is co working a prop tech, and I think that for us, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> We're asking you. <laughs> so we did include it in the report. I think that for the most part, when I think of PropTech, I do think a little bit more focused on what is technology powered. And I think that, that this is where there's a lot of companies that kind of go on the edge there because is it really technology with, with co-working, with some of the prefab housing? They, like even like There's a lot of companies that in this space that sort of do bleed over into sort of, is this a real estate company or is this a tech company? And I think it's actually quite interesting because in some cases, you see companies that have amazing tech. And even in the property management space, they have great tech. But the problem is, is that you can't get full value out of it unless you have more of a full stack. And so, so a lot of these companies have to make a decision at some point or whether it's early on or once they have the tech, is, does it make more sense for them to actually build it themselves and show that they can compete against other property managers and just be able to use technology to manage more properties or build more homes and sort of be a full full stack provider. And then, you know, and this is where we get into the Propco, Opco models and, and different ways that people structure that. So I do think that there is sort of a messy line around PropTech. And what I would say is that a lot of these companies are driving innovation and they are trying to use technology and leverage technology. So whether or not they're PropTech or not, and that's for different people to say. And I think what matters, I think that matters less over whether or not they're actually develop, innovating in the way that they do things and, and shaping how they can compete as well as how they influence the industry. It's a really interesting and, and ongoing conversation, Courtney. And I love that you didn't define it. I don't think it is definable. I mean, I'll use my experience as, a, as an example, right? I run the operations for the commercial department at First National. 70 to 80% of my time is meetings discussing our use of technology and in, in financing and just the way that we leverage technology. We're certainly not a prop tech company, but I will tell you in a couple of years from now, we're going to have a sophisticated data warehouse. We're leaning and looking at trends and making decisions based on our data. So I think it's going to be constantly evolving, right? Like as you define that prop tech as the rest of the community slowly, but surely becomes more technologically useful, however you want to define it. Well, and I think that like just one more comment on this, because I think that it's a challenge and people are always sort of asking about it and trying to define it. And it depends on who you're defining it for, right? Like for me, what matters is, do I think like in my job at Elate is, do we think this company can scale out of the and be venture backed and, and get the kinds of returns that we're looking for? And does it, and do they have customers in the real estate industry? Are they changing the way that the real estate or construction industry works? Like that sort of a definition for an investor. For real estate companies, I find it a bit challenging too, because sometimes like, sometimes I think kind of prop tech is like over there. Like, but really it's meant to be technology that powers your day to day. And so there's a lot of data companies that you may like subscribe to that, you know, may or may not be considered prop tech, but they are sort of starting to use more automated ways of collecting information and using more machine learning. So, you know, I, I think that what matters is, is focusing on what's the most interesting technology and how and that people are using or that might need now or in the future. But as it relates to a late partners, of course, you're investing in all of these, how broad of a net do you cast in terms of getting outside of a core definition of prop tech? Well, 
So we we focus on tech companies that are technology companies that are focused on real estate, right? So we do have and construction. So we do have an ability to have a broad mandate. We are small investors in Sonder, and then we're investors in a company called PadSplit uh, out of Atlanta. And so PadSplit is a technology company. They are focused on it's a, an affordable co living platform. So they're really focused on the large group of Americans that make twenty thousand dollars a year, twenty to forty thousand dollars a year in sort of that range. So essential, a lot of essential workers, a lot of people that need housing and in some cases might qualify for subsidized housing, but there isn't, there just isn't enough supply. And so for them, there's questions of, they have a tech platform, but they also partner with investors who own single family homes. There's questions about, do they purchase any of the homes themselves and create a fund to do that? Do they have a a background in, in actually owning the home? So I think that for us, we focus on what's scalable and what's the best way to get capital to grow the business. Sounds like you need a lender. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that for after the call. We'll leave that for after the call. One of the big takeaways that I had from the report was uh, early stage. So many of these companies are. I mean, I'll just quickly rhyme off some of the numbers that 67% of the companies were founded 2014 onwards and 60% are an early stage of growth. That just must be a absolute hotbed of activity for somebody like yourself who's looking to invest in companies when you have all these early opportunities. Do you see this as a big growth opportunity, a boom cycle for what you're doing? Yeah, 100%. So I think that it's clear to say, like, even without looking at the report, just being in the industry for the last two and a half years investing in companies, we have an early market, but we've got tons of amazing companies and just better and better founders who are focused on real estate technology every day. Like companies that are getting started and, and also you're just seeing them grow as we, there's just, we're just attracting such amazing talent into, to focus on PropTech. So there's that. I mean, the numbers are hard. And, and you kind of asked about this before in terms of methodology. But the challenge is, it's hard to like the numbers are not the best for 2020 and 2019. Right? Like if you think of how many companies are founded, like I'm sure that there's more companies that were founded in 2019 and 2020 that we've included. But if you think about co- when companies are founded, somebody is working on it on their side, and then they quit their job, and then they're building a product. And so by the time they make it into the news or onto PitchBook or into onto people's radars, they might be a year in. And so it's just harder to find a lot of those companies. And it's, it takes a bit of time to get a company started. And, and sometimes companies get started and they grow a ton in the first 18 or 24 months. But I would say that I find that a lot of times when people like that, the date, the founded date sometimes moves. You know what I mean? Like there's the date they actually founded it. But then there's the date when they eventually when things start working, when they say, oh, yeah, we founded it here. And in the first 18 months, this happened. And it's like, what was that date? So so I do think that like that kind of stuff changes. And so it, it is hard to know. It's not we're not reflecting the most recent what's happened the most recently. So I would say like we did. There are just tons of amazing companies that are getting started. And, and I think that whenever there's any type of like big disruption, which we've gone through now, it causes people to rethink what they want to do. And that for some people, that means a flight to safety and to safe jobs. And for other people, that means it's time for them to do what they've always wanted to do, or there's some sort of trigger that, okay, this the time is now. So well, I think we'll see a lot of people coming out of this. So like, are you, I mean, I don't, I'm not really sure how to phrase this, but I'm sure there's a lot of unsuccessful companies that get into this and then just don't, aren't able to find the financing. Maybe they get usurped or bought out or, uh, another company is doing the same thing, but just slightly in a different way or slightly better. How do you manage in your job looking for those that are truly going to be the successful? And, and I, I'm so I don't have the, the report memorized, but is there a part here where it talks about just the challenges of being an entrepreneur in this space, trying to find financing? 
trying to find an investor like yourself to really take them to that next level? And how, what percentage is it that truly end up becoming profitable ultimately? Very few. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think like being an entrepreneur is, is really sexy and the stories that you hear are of the ones that made it. Uh, companies can be really successful and it doesn't always happen right away, right? Like it can be really, really hard for a few years and then you can find product market fit. So companies can like just have like go through hard times and most companies do. So, you know, I think that it's hard to tell who is going to be, be successful and we do everything we can. We do a lot of diligence. We focus on the product and the business, of course. But for us, the team is the most important and you're trying to evaluate is, is this team the right team to do it? And do they have what we call like founder market fit? You know, from the timing perspective, it's hard because you always hear people talk about it. Like uh, somebody was just talking the other day about how Flex isn't new. It's been around for 50 years. Why? Like this is boring and, and nothing. But that's the truth of everything. Like people always say like, oh, this has happened before. We tried this before. But people, companies, you try things, companies fail, do fail for whatever reason. And it's a mix of things. Uh, companies succeed. And it might be that they execute a bit better. It might be because of the team they have and a slightly different approach. And a lot of it is just luck, just being at the right, the right person at the right time. So I think that it's a mix and it's hard when entrepreneurship is, is very hard and, and growing a business is very hard. I think in the real estate industry, it's still very relationship-based and you still have to, especially if you're selling to large companies and institutions, you have to be able to navigate the real estate world and, and get some people to believe in you. And if, you, if the people that you can get to believe in you are senior level or CEOs at some of these large companies, that's very helpful in your growth. Let's keep diving into that. One of the, the different sections is a commercial versus residential. I see there are more startups in the commercial space. So does that mean we're winning? <laughs> I don't know who's winning. I would say that, that there's been a lot of companies focused on the commercial side, focused on especially on the property management and energy man management space. I would say that right now with the focus on residential, there is even more sort of tailwinds on the residential side in this moment. Do you notice a big difference in the style of startups between the two different sides of real estate? Not necessarily. Like I, you know, I think that it's different use cases, but you have like incredible teams that are focused on the different sides of it. I think when you talk about commercial, if you're talking about some of the larger buildings, then it's a different profile there you're dealing with. You might be dealing with building automation systems or, you know, so different kinds of property management. Then if you're on the residential side, it's higher turnover. And so there's more sort of consumer facing versus B2B. Then if you look at sort of single family home or direct like the direct to consumer, that's entirely different. What I would say that I find kind of interesting is, and we talk about this a lot, is who should the customer be of different solutions? And I think that right now, one of the areas that you're seeing a lot of conversation about is climate tech and sustainability and ESG. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see who leads the charge because everyone cares about it. Everyone's putting out their goals. But, you know, there's certain things related to HVAC or within the build the core buildings that are going to be the landlord's responsibility and they're going to start with. But I do think that the tenants play a huge role, like a very important role. And, and in a lot of cases, they're going to be the ones that lead the charge. And so you might be actually selling directly to a tenant. And there's a lot of things that could fit between the landlord and the tenant. So, you know, if you think about access control or air quality, you know, in many cases, it depends on the model. You can sell to both. And I think in some cases, the tenants might be the ones that are the earliest adopters and then landlords depend on the demand for their tenants before they might make 
certain investments or decide on what types of amenities or services or specific areas to focus on. So on the theme of COVID winners and losers, when we first met you, Courtney, we had the conversation about COVID being a catalyst for change. Real estate's been chugging along very profitably for a long time, which doesn't really drive people to seek new avenues to or efficiencies or improvements in the way they do things if it's already producing well. COVID, of course, changed that. And we spoke about it, I guess it was early summer when we first spoke to you, but now we're much farther into the process. Do you see companies that are going to be well-poised to come out of COVID with a lot more gas in the tank because COVID forced people to adopt their technologies? And this could be office or outside of office, so, you know, the other asset classes. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about this a bit, right, already, some of them. So on the residential side, I think the buying experience, we're going to continue to see innovation there and, and not just become much easier. I think that it'll be interesting to see on retail, right? Like, they're obviously hit hard. And I think whenever that happens, there's opportunity for innovation. So we're going to see how that comes back and what sort of links are into e-commerce. And now that people are ordering more uh, or comfortable ordering more at home, what does that look like? I'm curious, like, for most people, you know, people who live in condos, they can get deliveries. But like, if, if you have a home where you can't get things delivered to, you know, maybe you can't get as much delivered when you're back at the office, or maybe you're not comfortable. You know, I've seen people try to build those like igloo boxes that are connected that allow your groceries to be delivered and kept at the right temperature while you're while you're gone. So I think it'll be like, it'll be interesting to see what kind of stuff happens that we're not expecting. So I think flex is interesting, right? Like CBRE and Frank are now uh, more into flex than they've ever been before. So we'll see how flex fits under the broker model and, and how they're able to scale that and make it work. Now there's going to be different incentives for them to fit it in and figure out how to run those properly. And I think that we're seeing landlords, you know, landlords I talk to in the US and Canada, they're thinking about how does flex and hospitality fit into their models. And some of them are already seeing tenants ask for a mix of a 10-year lease and access to a flex space and, and sort of thinking through that. So I think we'll see lots there. And then we talked about energy management, sustainability. I think that now that there is sort of a renewed or sort of a big push behind ESG and sustainability, the tech will follow. Now that customers are more focused on it as they put their strategies together, there's going to be more investment in technology. And then I guess the follow along from that or the downside to that is, did you see any companies really lose steam? Like a business model just changed. You you don't see them being as viable coming out of COVID. I mean, obviously don't name names because that's a cruel punishment, but there is winners and losers coming out of this on the tech side as there is in every sector. I think it depended on your business model. There's a lot of companies that sold to where their business made a lot more sense when people were in the office. A lot of services that were provided in office got cut back. Even though a lot of the flex operators were disrupted by this with people not being in the office and not having utilization and capital to pay for, for all of their spaces. So the thing is, I think a lot of them will get sort of win back in their sales as people start going back to the office. We are invested in a parking company. And that business has, fle- has fluctuated with like people are going into the office or not. To me, it's been surprising how well the parking industry has done since in my perspective, I'm always at home. But uh, when things lock down and if you've got transaction-based businesses that rely on people being out and about, they've been affected. So I, I think it, it depends. A lot of these companies will hopefully come back, but some models have been favored. I think for the most part, though, anything that allows you to operate more efficiently from home or from, from different places have taken off. So I think there's been a lot of accelerant there. And I would say that we've seen accelerated interest. So real estate companies re- recognizing that they really do need to upgrade. And some of it has been with timing. So, you know, some things really 
a lot of this is now more valuable than ever, but it's a question of when is the right time to implement. So people are waiting for like the landlords waiting for people to come back into the office before they want to spend money to help promote their retailers or to help provide any other sort of service, new services and support in the office. Report for a second, Courtney. I mean, there's yeah. something, I think, and it's, I guess, applicable to you on, on both fronts. There's one chart there that just talks about funding I and mean, prop tech startup funding and 60% of startups are in that pre-seed or seed funding. And you kind of got it broken up. You call it angel financing or seed financing. And then there's series A, series B plus that kind of goes up debt financing. And then of course, sort of an IPO or, or I guess you call it M&A. And I'm not going to put you on the spot. So maybe just give us ranges or generalizations, but what are the expected returns? You know, as somebody that does do this, that kind of investment in these prop techs, if you're an angel funder, like what are you expecting on a, on a return basis? Well, we would recommend investing in a fund. So if you want to invest in a prop tech fund, come talk to me. <laughs> but angel investing is hard, right? Like the whole value of a portfolio is diversification. And it, the most likely scenario for a company is that they, they go to business or you, know, you get your money back maybe. In most cases, it's really hard to make a lot of money in, in startups or in a particular startup. So I, I would say that angel investing, invest in something you're passionate about, invest with money that makes sense in your portfolio. But you know, it's really about the team and the entrepreneur and, and finding, you know, and ideally, if you're angel investing, again, like the people that are most successful, they invest a lot and they diversify so that they can get those 10x or much higher returns from some startups. And that makes up for all of your other losses where you get you get your money back or you get sort of a 1x or a 2x return. But it also depends on timing, right? It's gotten longer from the time a company was started. Like from the time angels invest until IPO can be over 10 years more until it's an event. So you are investing for a long period of time and it's hard to tell what your returns will look like until you know it's been enough time. Well, let's talk about who is attracted to investing in the space. Or is there institutional capital running around there? Or where is the money coming from that is pouring into the space now? So it's a mix. Yeah, definitely. Fifth Wall, obviously, is they've got like over a billion, a billion three assets under management. And I think all of their capital, or at least the majority of it, has come from large institutions. So they're one public example of, of where, the, where investment is coming from. And I think that most of the VCs I speak to, it's a mix of real estate capital, of family offices and angels and, and real estate families. And then... I do think that there's people that are generalists that are investing in the space. So, you know, I think you saw in the report in Canada, there is a late and green soil and groundbreak that are focused on this, but you're also seeing Panache and Round 13 and Real Ventures and others invest in, and for them and BDC. So for them, they've got some is government money, some is sort of the large institutions. And, and then in terms of direct investing, like some real estate companies are still direct investing. And like, obviously, Brookfield uh, is a great an example of a company that's putting their own capital to work. But I do think that there was a bit more activity from real estate companies investing directly into startups prior to the pandemic. And I think that it, it definitely slowed down while they were focused on their core business. And we'll see what happens over time if they want to invest through funds or, or direct. But well, I mean, a lot of the pension funds for sure are, have allocations now for prop tech or are thinking about allocations for prop tech. And so they're investing into funds. We talked about angel investing. I think everybody can appreciate what seed investing is, but there's also series A and series B plus. Maybe just describe what those are. And then I'll lead you into, if you had a dollar, what would be the appropriate sort of diversification on those different levels of prop tech investment? 
Yeah, the seed, the angel seed, like all of the series get a bit sort of mixed up. Typically, sort of pre-seed, pre-seed can be your friends and family rounds when you're doing like 500K to a couple million. And then they all bleed together. So seed is often when company ra- companies raise one to five. And then sort of at the series A, that's when they start raising over five. So 10 to 20. Where you are kind of in your business stage. Like I'm assuming pre-seed is like, I've got this great idea. I need yes. money to start. And then at seed, it's kind of like, okay, I've, I've built a website. I got no product yet, but I, you can, I can start to feel that it's turning into something. And then yeah. I guess series A is, okay, now I want to go to market. And so I need, like, how do you... Is it, yeah, is sorry. That's a helpful way to look at it. So yeah, so pre-seed is like, once you have the idea, you start working on it. And that might be putting some of your own capital in. You need that sweat equity. And the, that's sort of the start, the very start from the pitch deck and, to, and starting to build out the product. At the seed, at that point, companies typically have some revenue and they're, they have a product that's in market. It might be beta testing. It might be they might have sort of small amounts of revenue, but they're still out and selling and having people use it. And then at the Series A, like Lane is at a, at a Series A and they've got Brookfield is their largest customer. They're expanding with Brookfield around the world. They also are used by Nuveen and Dream and Hallmark. And so they've got like a lot of customers. And so I think that you know, at the Series A, what you have significant customers and you have like a real product. I think what's different when we look for at the Series B is that's where you really start to see the companies mature and have sort of a scalable and repeatable model. And, and so they're selling, but these things, they start to like, really have that engine going and start to build out their product and get sort of a, a more sort of deep bench of talent and, and just keep building their product and solving sort of more pain points. So Courtney, we're, we're almost running out of time here, but so we can end on a high note. We're all Canadians and you were born here, but I don't think it's by accident that you're in this space. Canada is a great place for what you're trying to do. We've got talent. There's clearly capital available, as we just discussed. Real estate has a huge impact on the Canadian landscape. It's a real pillar of our economy and well-supported. So for your closing thoughts, why are you happy that you're doing prop tech investments in Canada? And why should we all be excited about it? So I think it's like, I don't think there's been a better time to be in real estate tech, hopefully to be in real estate also. I mean, I think that right now you've never had more people rethink their real estate strategies and rethink the way, like, the way that they work and the way that they live. So I think that that creates opportunities and new ideas are born at this time. So from my perspective, I think it's a really exciting time. And that's sort of just the signals for what's going to happen in the next five and 10 years. So based on what I see every day, like there's tons of capital and opportunity. There's tons of opportunities to invest in amazing, amazing founders that are building sort of the next generation technology companies in, in the real estate industry. And I think that all of the real estate companies here have just, just continued to get more and more thoughtful about how they think about their data strategy, how they think about how technology can help leverage their business, how they think about what their sort of key strategies are around ESG or around growing their business. And I think that as as they mature on their innovation and, and tech strategy, there's more opportunities. And, and they've just started to work with more different tech companies. So they're sort of building that muscle of how do they work with tech companies? How do they use cloud platforms? How do they start to think about what's possible and, and, and what's different now today and in the future than it's been in the past? So I think it's an exciting time. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And you know, it really boils down to if you are in real estate, but not necessarily focused on prop tech, prop tech's here to 
ultimately accelerate returns, which should get everybody excited if uh, <laughs> they're motivated by money. Courtney, thank you so much for your time here today. It's always a really, really enlightening to speak with you. I'm glad we get a chance to talk a couple of times a year. Uh, super insightful, and I, I love what you're doing in the industry. For the listeners, I would say that Ref Club membership has its benefits. One of them is you can now talk to Courtney one-on-one and ask the questions that you've got rather than just having to hear the questions that Aaron and I have. So thanks again, and thanks to the Ref Club for hosting this. We're going to jump over to uh, Q&A next. Thanks so much, guys. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where Adam and I kind of digest the discussion we just had. Courtney, that's now the third time we've had the pleasure of interviewing her, getting to know her better, her know, understand her business better. The thing that stuck out to me is just, and she wouldn't give us numbers, I didn't want to push on it, but just the way that the expectation of return on these investment tiers, and I hope all the listeners went and found the report because it really is fascinating. And she just talked about, you know, she said 10x on an angel investment, but it's probably more like a 1,000x. So if you're giving somebody that's got a great idea, some money to help them just get the idea out of their head onto a website or something, like you better be expecting some pretty astronomical returns, right? I'm going to use my limited dragon den watching as just the way that those guys think. Like, and that's not even angel investing or seed investing. Like those are refined companies that are looking to take it to the next level. And even they're asking for like, I'll take 50% of the company. And I want 50% of the profits on this stuff if I give you $20,000 or whatever the numbers are. So it's like gambling, right? Like it really is like a gambling addict, let them loose and hope they hit the jackpot once out of every 100 bets. I'm hoping that Courtney does not listen this far into the uh, <laughs> podcast. That's how you're portraying your business model. But yeah, there is definitely a swinging for the fences kind of strategy. It's a home run or nothing, maybe. And I don't think she does that. I think she's a little bit more calculated, clearly. One of the other things that was really interesting is that and she joked with you about like she wouldn't invest in you for that particular idea, but she might invest in somebody else. And, and we talked about this on a previous interview with her about it really comes down to character a lot of the time, right? Do you think that person has the entrepreneurial spirit to figure it out, to work hard and get it done? Or the experience, right? Well, we've even talked about it on our episodes with the REIT analyst, where they talked about there's the spreadsheet version of the company where you look at all the numerical metrics and boundaries that we analyze REITs with. And there's also the intangible. They look at the leadership team. They look at who's running it. They look at their track record. That factors in decision as well. So same thing. It's not just purely a mathematical equation. You got to know that the person at the helm of the ship's going to do it properly. You got to wonder too for that kind of investment because track record would be non-existent. As the report stated, 67% of the companies were founded after 2014. So you can't point to somebody with a 30-year winning track record. It just doesn't exist in this space. I mean, for prop tech, I don't even know what you talk about. The personal computer being the, one of the first major steps forward. It's hard to pinpoint. There's only one or two guys I can think of, right? Like, I mean, forget Elon Musk and what he's done, but who's the guy that just sold Slack? Is a Canadian out of BC. Butterfield is his last name. He's also the one that sold Flickr 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So here's a guy that's now created two multi-billion dollar companies and sold them off. So I'm sure whatever he's working on right now, there's just angel investors lined up to give him whatever money he needs. Although he probably doesn't need the money given the fact that he's been making and selling billion dollar companies now for a bunch of years. Well, the tech world, I think they call those unicorns, you know, valuations of over a billion dollars. And actually, I wish we had Courtney on the after show now. 
I'd love to know how many prop tech specific companies have hit valuations of over a billion dollars. Well, yeah, probably not many, I would guess, that I could think of anyway. And the other conversation that I thought was really interesting is the definition of what prop tech is. We had Peter Altabelli on a couple of weeks ago, and he describes Yardi as a technology company. They're basically a property management company and other aspects of the business, but they're 100% database technology company. So is that prop tech? When do you become prop tech? Can you go from non to become prop tech? I just don't know. And it's evolving, obviously. Is CoStar a prop tech company? Their valuation is multiple billions. I do know that. So if we're going to use our definition to incorporate those kinds of companies, then CoStar would be a unicorn in that sense. But yeah, I thought it was interesting that we're struggling to define it. That kind of makes sense. But Courtney is an expert. They choose not to define it. That's really interesting. Either way, I really enjoyed talking to Courtney for a third time, and I'm sure we'll get a fourth chance at some point in the future. But I want to thank the listeners for tuning in this far into the episode to get to the very end. And thanks to the Ref Club for organizing a great panel, and of course to First National for powering the podcast. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.